TB is the world's oldest infection. It's preventable, it's curable, but thousands of years since it was first identified, it continues to devastate people, communities, families, countries. Until this year, TB was the leading infectious cause of death. Tuberculosis is an infectious disease caused by Mycobacterium tuberculosis, or MTB. It usually starts from a small infection in the lung, which can lead to coughs, chest pain, chills, and fever. As we just heard from Dr. Daftery, TB is one of the leading infectious diseases in the world, affecting many lives every year. Some of the difficulties with preventing and treating TB come from the complex mechanism of how the bacteria invade our immune system, as well as from some socioeconomic factors that impact the epidemiology and stigmatization of the disease. In today's episode, we will review prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of this preventable disease, and then explore specific challenges we face with regards to tuberculosis, including drug resistance, co-infection, and stigma. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. And we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn about and reflect on the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous people and the complex perceptions of and barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. I'm Claire. I'm Jason. And I'm Zainab. And this is Raw Talk Podcast. First, we spoke with Dr. Liu, a professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Molecular Genetics who is currently developing novel strategies for the control of tuberculosis. Can you give us a brief overview of what tuberculosis is and the disease mechanisms? Yeah, so tuberculosis, in short, we call it TB, is a respiratory infectious disease. So it's caused by a bacteria called Mycobacterium tuberculosis, just like the virus you know, SARS-CoV-2 causes the COVID-19. So it's caused by a single bacteria. It's primarily infect lungs, so it again transmitted through airway. So you, we basically can inhale this through aerosol infections. That's the natural infection route, just like SARS-CoV-2. Actually, the transmission rate or infection rate is actually higher than the SARS-CoV-2. So we call the R factor. The R factor of the MTP is higher than the SARS-CoV-2. So it's highly contagious, very easy to transmit between individuals. And once it enters the lungs, it's taken up by the lung macrophage. And as you know, that's our primary immune cells, the first line of defense against any invading bacteria and virus. However, MTB, you know, most of the virus and bacteria try to avoid macrophage. They have a different strategy to do so, but MTB actually prefer the macrophage. So macrophage is a primary host cell for their target. So they infect uh, the macrophage once they enter the macrophage, they can uh, stay inside of the phagosome and without uh, getting out of the phagosome. So they can prevent the so-called phagosome uh, normal maturation. Normally, the phagosome would undergo a series of steps and eventually fuse with the lysosome. 
and because of the many enzymes in the lysosome, also the acidic pH that would kill the invading bacteria or viruses. However, MTB somehow managed to stop this process and they were able to prevent the normal phagosome maturation. Not only so that they can actually replicate inside the phagosome and to a large number eventually kill the macrophage by uh, necrosis. And after that, they can invade the neighboring macrophage and this process just continue. Eventually develops a lung pathology and then the clinical symptom including, for instance, a fever and laboring breath, and the body weight lost. Eventually, the patient died. It's a chronic disease. Uh, the patient died gradually. The old term for tuberculosis is actually consumption. So that basically the disease consumes the individual. So that's precisely described the clinical symptoms. And so our normal, for instance, the antibody-based immunity does not play a critical role. So we need to have the cellular immunity in order to control it. And unfortunately, when it comes to cellular immunity, it's, as you know, it's very complicated. And we actually don't know what is the immunological correlates that predict the protection. In other words, we don't know what the exact immune response that allows us to control the bacterial infection. Most of people who are infected uh, we can get easily infected. In fact, I forgot to mention that in addition to 1.5 million deaths, there's a 10 million new cases every year. And in the world, it's estimated about more than 2 billion people have been infected. We call it the latent infection. So the, the spectrum of the disease is huge. So there's a huge reservoir of the individual. When I, when I mentioned this 2 billion people, latent infection, it means that uh, you, ha you have been infected. The bacteria, as I mentioned, wants to get into the macrophage, they infect the macrophage, and then they, they basically can uh, kill the macrophage, and then your immune system starts to realize you have invading bacteria, then call all this immune system, try to control it. Eventually form this, we call the granuloma. It's basically just like a wall of your immune cell fibroblasts surrounding the infected tissue which have the bacteria. However, in most of the cases, in 90% of the individuals who are infected like this, the bacteria is still is, uh, is not dead. We cannot eradicate it just by the, our immune system. We can control it, but it's, they're still there. They sort of went enter this, we call it dormancy or latency uh, without the active replication, but they're, they're still alive. And when your immune system is compromised by, for instance, secondary infection or other uh, medical conditions that compromise your immune system, then the bacteria can restart to grow and they can break out this granuloma and become active disease again. So, so it's very different to other bacteria and they have a much longer, in terms of the infection stage, I would say that, and also, because of that, the treatment is also very difficult. So for normally for infection disease, most of the bacterial infection, you know, you go to a doctor, they prescribe two weeks antibiotics, and they ask you to finish that, and that's it. For TB, the minimum time to complete the, uh, the treatment is six months. It requires four to six different drugs, at least six months. And after that, the doctor will 
look at the situation and decide whether you have to continue the therapy. So typically nine to 12 months are the time that you require to complete the therapy. With such a long course of treatment, and even then a lot of uncertainty in the treatment outcomes, is a vaccine the best way to stop the rising TB infection rates? Can you explain the BCG vaccine, which is the one most commonly used for TB? So BCG is a live attended vaccine for TB. It's been around for almost 100 years. It was initially developed by two French microbiologists, Carmen and Gurria. What they did was that they isolated the Mbovis strain, a variant strain of mycobacteria from infected cow, and then they passaged it in vitro. So at that time, they inoculate on this uh, on the plate, and then actually the potato, they cut the potato, and then use the surface to inoculate the colony at that time. And so when they did the subculturing, they kept observing the colony. They found, they noticed that when they did the subculturing, they saw the colony morphology changed. So the reason that, okay, if we kept doing this, perhaps we can reduce the virulence of the bacteria. And that was the, their idea. So even though it's, it's amazing because at that time there was no molecular biology, right? We don't know anything about molecular biology at that time. But they basically, based on this simple observation, and they decided they could potentially be able to reduce the virulence by serial passaging. And so they, they thought, okay, we could use this as a vaccine. And how does the BCG vaccine work? Very good question. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> the short answer is that we know some of it. We don't know the full story. The BCG works by induced T-cell response, primarily CD4 T-cell response, the TH1 cytokine, and produced by CD4 T-cell. And that's been shown. So this is uh, come back to the efficacy of the BCG. I should say that even though this is the, the most widely used vaccine in human history, and it's still being used today, it's not a perfect vaccine, right? As you pre- would predict, otherwise it would not have the TB problem today, right? We would not have 1.5 million people died every year. I would not have the problem with 10 million new cases every year. The... <laughs> Clinical efficacy of ECG, the best estimate is about 40 to 50% on average. And so the question why it works is because it can induce CD4T cell response. Why it doesn't provide the full protection, we don't know. And it's likely to do with uh, you require other component of the T cells, including CD8 T cell, including some other NK cell, et cetera. Antibody, unfortunately, plays a minor role, although there is some more interest now in trying to develop an antibody-based vaccine. But in my view, is it has to be combined with the T-cells to be optimal effective. Given the limited efficacy of the BCG vaccine, what are some ways that researchers have tried to improve it or find other approaches altogether? Around the 1990s, Peter Anderson from Denmark, he was a pioneer, came up with the idea to using so-called a subunit vaccine. Uh, so basically, subunit vaccine is sort of referred in contrast to the wholesale bacteria. So you, you either use a single protein or a few protein, either purify the protein as the antigen or express using adenoviral vector or some other DNA form. And the, the goal was to use a few 
T-cell antigen as a vaccine instead of the BCG, which is a whole bacteria cells. So they were the one that thought of this idea. And so a lot of work around that time was trying to develop a new generation of TB vaccine, primarily using the subunit vaccine. However, this approach turns out didn't work very well. So in 2013, they did a clinical trial in South Africa, basically using this subunit vaccine as a booster of the BCG. They did a clinical trial. Unfortunately, the clinical trial result was disappointing. Basically, there was absolutely no benefit for this subunit vaccine using as a second boost. So I, on the other hand, I have a different opinion about this. I really think for TB vaccine, I think it has to be wholesale based because the the bacteria have about 4,000 genes. There are many different antigens. There's no single dominant antigen. So it's very difficult to pinpoint which one you should use. And I think the wholesale-based vaccine is still the way to go. So we focused more on the try to improve the BCG itself, the so-called recombinant BCG. So over the years, we, well, we have tried different approach. And one of the approach we focused on was trying to understand the differences among different BCG strains and try to figure out the genetic differences among the strains. I should go back a little bit. When I mentioned, you know, I told you about the history of BCG, uh, starting from 1924, country from all around the world received the BCG. And I mentioned the BCG is a live attenuate vaccine. It has to be alive to be effective. Around that time, unfortunately, they did not have the minus 80 freezer, the technology we have today. So they could not preserve the seed lot. So the only way they could do is passaging in vitro. Basically, it's kept growing them. Every four weeks, once they have the culture growth, they have to take a portion of their subculture in fresh medium and in order to have the vaccine. So they did this all the way until 1960s. So, so different countries, they were doing their own in their manufacturing site. As a molecular biologist, you would uh, understand now that obviously there's a many mutations accumulated uh, through those years, from 1920 to 1960s. And because they were all doing differently, all those mutations likely to be adapted to the, whatever the condition they used to subculture. So you end up with a large number of the substrates. And also the strain we have today is not the strain that the initial isolate in 1921, right? Because of all this mutation. So in around the 1966, the WHO realized this is a problem. And then that's when they asked everyone to freeze dry and to preserve their BCG stocks. And that's what we have, the seed locks we have for today. Now, because of the history, the complication, and it's, we know there's many different substrates, but we don't know which one is the best. And we still don't know, actually. So I understand that your lab is currently working on a TB vaccine as well. What was the approach that you took? We started working on BCG around 2000, right after I came to Toronto. And the major question around that time was that, as I said, because BCG is not perfect, so the whole field was trying to improve upon the BCG. We began to really try to figure out what are the genetic differences at a genome level between different BCG strains. My goal was trying to 
correlated this genetic mutation with the clinical efficacy of the vaccine. So we hope we would be able to figure out perhaps some of the genetic mutation is important for efficacy of the vaccine. That's my goal. So we did that uh, through the years using different genome uh, platform initially using you know whole genome microarray analysis because that time the whole genome sequence was very expensive. We didn't have the money to do so. So we mostly the, using the microarray based hybridization to detect a large deletion or duplication and different technique, different platform. Uh, all the way until 2013, I believe we, we completed the whole genome sequencing for 13 different BCG strains, including some of the most widely used, BCG Japan, BCG Russia, two Canadian strains, uh, two American strain, BCG Glasgow, the British strain, basic, and the Brazilian strain, basically around uh, 13 different BCG strains around the world. And once we connect all the data, then the, the biggest question is, you know, does it matter, this genetic mutation, how do you correlate with the uh, come up with the idea which gene mutation affects the efficacy. That's the most difficult questions. So we, I went back to the hist historical data. There's a lot of study done in clinical study, looking at both the efficacy and the immunogenicity. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, there's a number of different clinical trials that were done, but nobody has ever compared two different BCG strains in the single clinical trial. So it's, it is difficult to compare different clinical trials, you know, because so many variables. So essentially we don't have any data to suggest whether one species substrate is better than the others. However, you know, like I said, in, in 1970s, after the WHO realized that maybe some differences among the BCG strain produced by different country, they asked everyone to freeze dry to preserve it. They also did a, a sort of a study compare different BCG strains. And they, they look at the immune response, so basically immunogenicity. So there was a study they published in 1974, they compare about 11 different BCG strains in children. And they noticed just looking at the immune response, the PPD reactivity, basically. And they found that the one BCG strain called BCG Prague consistently is an outlier. It has much lower immunogenicity compared to other BCG strains. Now, in 2008 or so, we, we look at the BCG Prague genome sequence, and I noted there was a single nucleotide insertion in one of the genes called 4P. You know, the 4P4R are the two component transition factor for, for the MTB. And this single base pair insertion disrupts the DNA binding domain of the 4P. So I immediately <laughs> related back to the, the data that people and the WHO data that shows the BCG prior has very low intensity. And because the 4P4 are act positively active a number of the antigens. So I thought this could be the reason. So that was the, the first clue we, we think we found one gene that's important for the immunogenicity and potentially efficacy. So we decided to test the idea. So how we, we basically complement the BCG prog with a Y-type OP. And then indeed we were able to restore its immune response immunogenicity level to the level of other BCG strains. I should say this mutation is only specific to BCG prog. Other BCG strains do not have this mutation. So that was very exciting. 
So then I asked the question, can we push it even further? Can we, let's say, take it BCG Japan as an example. And if we overexpress FOP4I in BCG Japan, which already has you know, the FOP, the intact FOP, can we even actually increase our immunogenicity even further? So we did that. We cloned the FOP4R and a plasmid and then put into BCG Japan. And indeed, we were able to increase the interferon gamma production by CD4 T cell by threefold uh, higher than the BCG Japan itself. And so that was very exciting. So we thought, okay, can we demonstrate this actually translate into protection? So we did using the guinea pig as an animal model. We immunize the animal with the uh, PBS, non-vaccinated group, and then the BCG Japan, and then the recombinant BCG Japan overexpressing for before. And then after eight weeks of vaccination, we challenged it with MTB using aerosol infection. And then we just basically monitor the survival of the animal for different groups. And that experiment takes about one year. And so, yeah. So, and then we look at the uh, median survival time. So for the PBS group, the median survival time, basically half of the animal died, 18 weeks. And the group that vaccinated with uh, BCG Japan, the parent uh, strains was 27 weeks. And the group that vaccinated with our recombinant BCG Japan, overexpressing for P4R was 39 weeks. So we had, uh, yeah. We had substantially yeah, increased the survival of the animals. So we were very excited. We published the paper. Right now, I'm actually trying to hopefully do a clinical trial in China, but it's, it's very challenging because uh, <laughs> you need a lot of money to do this kind of work. So it sounds like there's good news on vaccine development horizons. But in the absence of a highly effective vaccine, for now, we must rely on diagnostics and treatment programs, which the World Health Organization estimates has saved approximately 60 million lives in the last 19 years. Unfortunately, globally, the disease continues to take a large toll. The following eight countries account for two-thirds of global cases. India, Indonesia, China, the Philippines, Pakistan, Nigeria, Bangladesh, and South Africa. We spoke with Dr. Amrita Daftari to learn about the treatment and diagnosis of TB. Hi, Dr. Daftry. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your research? It's lovely to meet you, Claire. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a social science researcher and an educator based out of the new School of Global Health at York University in Toronto. And I study behavioral and social aspects of illness and particularly have a focus in TB, tuberculosis. I use uh, qualitative approaches in my research. So I talk to patients, to community members, to families, healthcare workers, and learn from their experiences and uh, apply them to develop programs or interventions that could address their needs from a holistic, a biosocial sort of standpoint. I also use their ideas and truths to um, critique health policy and social policy for TB. Uh, most of my work is based in South Africa and in India, but I've worked in other countries and, and also contribute to several global projects. There, there are so many reasons that I ended up in this space. I have family and friends who've been affected by TB. I grew up in India. That has a very high burden of disease. But mostly I'm in this space because TB is an underdog infection, and I've always rooted for the underdog. Wow, that's really inspiring. TB is the underdog. So from my understanding, active TB-infected individuals show symptoms 
and can easily spread it to others. And some people may be infected with TB but have no symptoms, which is called latent TB. And some cases of latent TB can become active disease, while others might remain asymptomatic. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges of TB diagnosis and what some of the current diagnostic tools are? I know many of us may have had a TB test where a nurse injects a small amount of liquid under the skin in our arm. Diagnosing TB either form is not straightforward. There's no dipstick test, you know. I'll, I'll focus for a moment just on active disease or TB disease because that's the one that's associated with greatest morbidity. The recommended test is the expert MTB ref assay, which was developed some years ago, and this can find tuberculosis, the bacillus in your sputum within a few hours. And it'll also tell you what type of TB you have, whether it's resistant to common drugs or not. But there are many challenges associated with its use. These issues are being sort of taken up slowly and gradually, but for the most part, people who are living in low-income settings are first getting placed on TB treatment based on their clinical signs, their symptoms, such as cough, fever, night sweats. They might have an abnormal chest x-ray. They might have a smear microscopy test done. But there are many problems that underlie these tests. They're not particularly sensitive or specific, or if they have sensitivity, they're not very specific or vice versa. The expert test or culture would be really the most effective option. And countries, there, there are some low- and middle-income countries that are spearheading those efforts, South Africa, China. They've really taken expert up as a first-line test for people thought to have TB. That's, that's going to be the way to go. But access and utilization is still sparse. When it comes to latent infection or TB infection, that's probably the test that you've heard about, the Mantu test or the skin test. But it takes a bit of expertise to figure it out, how to um, diagnose latent infection, how to distinguish that from active disease, how to sort of identify people who have that infection when they're compromised. They have a compromised immune system, for example. So there's problems associated with it. And there's a group of researchers at McGill University who've really done a lot to sort of facilitate ease of reading those test results. But it's not a one-stop shop. The patient has to come back to hear their result. And it needs to be sort of, I guess, diagnosed by an expert ultimately. So after diagnosis, what does treatment actually look like? When it comes to TB treatment, I'll again just focus on disease. A patient would need to take about six months of treatment with two to four antibiotics, and they'd start to become non-infectious very quickly, within a few days of, of taking treatment. So that's the good news. But the treatment is long. It's six months, and you're taking two to four pills a day. You're going to have some side effects, but for the most part, they're pretty well tolerated. What's nice is that they're totally free. We've come to the, the stage where no matter where in the world you are, you're able to access those medicines free of cost. So even in resource-poor settings, you can find a pretty good rate of treatment success if the patient receives treatment early in time and, and receives some support to take that treatment. This year, we're also seeing evidence of a very short uh, regimen, up to four months, as opposed to the traditional six months of taking this treatment, which is really, really exciting for, for patients and health systems. When it comes to prevention of active disease, so really treatment of the infection, Traditionally, it's been, you know, six to nine months of antibiotic therapy, and even that has come down now to as little as a couple of months or once a week, 12 doses of a single pill. So we're really, we're really seeing some headway in this direction. But not all TB is easy to treat. So drug-resistant TB, for example, is very severe, very debilitating, complicated to diagnose, requires one to two years of treatment with at least, you know, eight plus medicines, which translate to, I don't know, anywhere from 15 to 25 pills a day. So that's really where we need greater investment. And there's new regimens now on the horizon. So 
I'm very much looking forward to their rollout. Because TB requires daily doses of oral medication to cure that often have side effects, I've heard it's really important that patients take their medications every day to avoid the development of drug resistance. I find it really interesting that TB is a reportable illness, which means that the government gets notified of every positive test result. Every country has a TB control program known as DOTS. So what's DOTS? Yeah, so DOTS, DOTS is a strategy that was adopted by the WHO back in the 1990s. It has sort of five key elements. There's political commitment and financing. There's case detection based on high-quality tests, standardized treatment together with patient support and supervision, a really sound sort of drug supply management system, and a monitoring framework, an evaluation framework to measure impact. The acronym really came about from this idea of direct observation of treatment, or DOT, which is the practice of directly observing a patient take their medicines or ingesting their pills on a daily basis to ensure that they remain adherent to treatment. Yeah, as a means to um, prevent transmission, right? Because if you're taking the medicines, you're adherent, you're culling the bacteria, you're not spreading it to anyone else. So this DOTS really came about at a time when TB rates had spiraled out of control and primarily because of a rise of HIV, which was a leading sort of driver of the TB epidemic, in, in parts of Southern Africa, and, and also because there was a rise in drug resistance to TB in many, many parts mm-hmm. of the world. So WHO needed to find some sort of a universal strategy to, to control the right. epidemic. But we've really seen a shift away from that approach. Right. We now have something called the End TB Strategy. It's the latest blueprint for global sort of TB response. It does look for political commitment. It still has many of the tenets of DOTS, but it sees communities and civil society as a huge player in the in the fight and um it really is trying to address issues around equity human rights patient centered care so there's right. some progress being made you know there's there's the autonomy taken away uh, because there's yeah. really no other disease no other condition in the entire world where we've decided this is the way that we need to monitor patients tuberculosis right. is literally the only disease where dot has been the mainstay of wow. treatment monitoring so there there are there are settings in which you know, people have really used DOT in a patient-friendly way. The Toronto mm-hmm. Public Health Program, for example, uses DOT and they deliver it as, um, yes, they're observing the patient take their medicine, but they're also using that opportunity to connect to the patient, to explore, is everything else okay with them? You know, are their mm-hmm. social medical needs being met? Do they have any side effects? It's it's not this sort of top-down, dogmatic right. approach that removes, yeah, that strips the patient of dignity and autonomy. Mm-hmm. The DOT strategy has some advantages, although it can exacerbate certain populations' marginalization and stigma surrounding TB, which we'll talk about more later. Due to the variability between TB cases, we've learned that treatment can get complicated. Dr. Sarah Fortune is a trained infectious disease doctor and now a basic scientist, and the chair of the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. We asked Dr. Fortune how variability between cases impacts TB treatment. So there are different ways to think about why, for example, some people are going to do fine with treatment. And just to lay out the the treatment problem, TB treatment is typically six months long for like the easiest case scenario, six months long, four drugs for two months and two drugs for four more months. Okay, that's a lot of, a lot a lot, right? And it's actually clear there have been efforts to shorten treatment. And it's clear from the treatment shortening trials that some people would do fine with three months therapy. 
But enough people, so already 10% of people with our six months of treatment fail. So, and then, you know, in the other windows, as you're trying to shorten that down, more people fail and the question is why. And the classic teaching in TB 101 is it's all patient compliance. Uh, those people fail because we're going to blame the patient. And I think there's compelling, now compelling evidence, both from the biologic side and then from the public health side, you know, work from people or groups like Partners in Health, my friend Paul Farmer, who have really debunked that myth. And so we've been looking at, like, are all bacteria the same? We call it all TB, but like, is my TB different than your TB? And are there differences independent of the high-level drug-resistant mutations that we recognize? Are there different flavors of TB that mean my bacteria are inherently slower to clear in the face of the same treatment than your bacteria? And if we knew that, could we like figure that out at the outset and then tailor therapy appropriately? And um, I think the data from our lab says yes. And there are probably different levels at which that kind of bacterial diversity arises. So despite many patients following their treatment regimens, they may already be infected with resistant strains. Can you tell us about the different types of resistance? Okay, well, there are different kinds of ways you can think of TB surviving in the face of drug. The, the path to survival that we understand the best is true drug resistance. And when, like, if people go to the hospital and are told they have drug-resistant bacteria, you know, that has one meaning, and it means the bacterium is able to grow in very high levels of the drug. And we know for TB, that's what we know about. We know how to find those genetic markers. We know how to diagnose that increasingly, although it's, it can take a long time, but we're getting better at it uh, with the, the genetic tests for drug resistance. But then it turns out below that, that's like the tip of the iceberg. And below that, there's a giant iceberg of different kinds of changes in TB drug susceptibility. Like TB has been under basically constant drug pressure for the last, since, you know, the 1950s. And so there's just this giant iceberg of different flavors or different paths by which the organism has learned to survive in the face of drug. And so those are things like uh, drug tolerance. Like I won't die, I won't be able to grow in the face of drug, but I won't die either. And so when you release the drug, I haven't grown, I haven't like manifested as more disease. And so maybe you're not as aware of me, but when you release the drug, I'm still there. I, the bacteria, I'm still there and I'm gonna take off. There are lots of different flavors of drug tolerance actually. Yeah, I was looking into it and, you know, there's the multi-resistant TB, the MDR-TB, the XDR-TB, and just so many. It's just, <laughs> where do you start? Those are all sort of the tip of the iceberg. And when you're seeing MDR and XDR, uh, when you hear those terms, what that means is actually is talking about the individual resistances to the individual antibiotics. So there are four first-line drugs, you know, isoniazid, rifampin. Ethambutol and pyrazinamide. If you're resistant to the two best of those, isoniazid and rifampin, we call you MDR. And then there's like a whole suite of second line drugs, like a menu you can choose from if you have resistances to the first line drugs. And as you are acquiring resistances to the rest of the first line drugs and then the second line drugs, you eventually get to, you know, XDR or you know, very high level TDR, we have totally drug resistant. 
flavors of TB. Another factor that can complicate TB infection treatment and outcomes is HIV. The WHO says that the risk of developing active TB is about 16 to 27 times greater in people living with HIV as compared to those without HIV infection. Dr. Fortune told us about how the co-epidemics of TB and HIV actually motivated her interest in TB research. I went to medical school in New York City in the early 1990s. So I started medical school in 1991 at Columbia. And that was an era that I think many people have forgotten what it was like. So that was at the height of the AIDS epidemic prior to the introduction of antiretrovirals. And in fact, in Northern Manhattan at that time, there was a coincident TB epidemic and the rates of TB in Northern Manhattan at that time and drug resistant TB were um, higher than they were in many parts of say, Sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, the TB epidemic had local hotspots in the Columbia Teaching Hospitals. Staff uh, were getting drug-resistant TB and dying of drug-resistant TB. Um, and it was very clear at that time that the intellectual energy in the medical and scientific community was focused on HIV. And uh, you can understand why that would be, but that there was this concurrent burden of tuberculosis that both took people by surprise and where there was very, very little investment. There were very few people working in TB. There was basically none of the tools for addressing TB had changed in decades. And it just seemed like there was enormous need and really interesting scientific questions. And so I decided then sort of this is what I wanted to work on. I knew I had a lot of training ahead of me. And it seemed like it was a problem that was going to be there when I finished all my training. And so that's sort of cemented it for me. And I uh, have been interested in tuberculosis ever since. Very interesting. So how does co-infection with HIV and TB work? HIV screws up your immune response in many, many different ways. Uh, Most fundamentally, HIV attacks your CD4 T-cell compartment which is critical for um, controlling TB infection, sort of one arm of the adaptive immune response. But in fact, HIV, you know, that's sort of the easiest description of what HIV does, you know, and maybe the one people are most familiar with because clinically people will describe HIV stages in terms of CD4 T cell levels or numbers. But in fact, HIV disrupts immune coordination in many different aspects of immunity that are all important in controlling TB. So control of TB is not just one arm of your immune response. Control, like appropriate control of TB is multifactorial. Your CD4 response, your CD8 response, probably your antibody response, your innate immune response, they're all coming together to to control TB. And in the setting of HIV, that a whole, like all those axes are disrupted and there's sort of an explosion of TB in an individual. It's kind of interesting to think though, So you can get sick from TB when your immune axes are disrupted, but it's clear that some of TB disease is actually not too little immunity or poorly functioning immunity, but sort of too aggressive immunity, if that makes sense. And again, that's kind of similar to what we see in uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection now, where people are getting sick, not because their immune responses are perturbed, but actually because they have this hyperactive immune response that causes damage and makes them sick. So TB is very similar to that. 
So I think that in this moment, when we have such an understanding of what it means for large swaths of the population to become sick with an infectious disease, die of an infectious disease, that I wish that people understood in their hearts what the TB numbers really meant. So every year, over a million people die of TB infection. Now, globally, we have now surpassed a million deaths from SARS-CoV-2 infection, but it wasn't that long ago that we crossed that threshold. And every year, over a million people die of TB and it just passes unnoticed. And that's in part because, because it is a disease of poverty. It's a disease of, that hits places in the world that we, at least here in the United States, tend not to see as clearly. But you know, those are live, real people's lives. So why doesn't TB get the attention it deserves? Part of it has to do with the stigma, that it's associated with factors such as poverty, immigrants or displaced persons, and HIV co-infection. Assumptions are often made about the type of people that get sick from TB, and because it's transmitted so easily, feelings of fear are amplified within communities. Dr. Daftry talks about the harmful effects of stigmatization of TB and how that impacts the lives of those who live with the disease. Yeah, stigma is it's a really pernicious consequence of TB, I would say. You know, the bacteria doesn't necessarily discriminate, but because TB is transmitted through airborne droplets, it's activated through immune suppression. People who live and work in congested spaces, who have compromised immune systems, who come into contact with TB patients are at a very high risk for acquiring and developing TB. And depending on the context, this can include prisoners, people with HIV, people who live in poverty, immigrants or displaced persons who are living in highly crowded situations. And these are exactly the same social groups who have the least power in society. So it's very easy to cast blame, shame, and and even disdain for such patients. The infectious nature of TB also is quite scary to to Mm -hmm. people. You can see what's happening with COVID and, Mm -hmm. you know, the mortality rate from TB is about seven times higher than COVID. So you can just imagine. But what's, uh, yeah, what's, what's terrible, I think, about TB stigma is whether it's covert, you know, insidious or very overt and obvious, it comes from everywhere, within patients' homes, from their families, from their partners, in their communities, from neighbors, friends, colleagues, employers, and also from social institutions and structures such as places of work, study, health facilities, doctors, cleaning staff, and, and even mm-hmm. governments. It's a stigma, I would say, it's, it, it really does affect, I believe it impacts our efforts to eliminate TB. It's a social determinant, I would say, of TB. It's one of the reasons why people delay getting tested for TB, delay taking treatment for TB, stop taking treatment as soon as they start to feel better. It could be a reason why people don't readily disclose their illness to others, so it could affect sort of contact tracing investigations and follow-up. Stigma is also a reason why um, this is really sort of micro and meso level consequences of stigma, but at the bigger level, at the sort of programmatic level, stigma can prevent healthcare programs and social programs and policies from acting in the best interests of people with TB by prioritizing, for example, the well-being of a healthy asymptomatic public over the well-being of an individual who is symptomatic and ill with TB. Right. And I think that type of stigma, that driver of stigma, is the most worrisome because without institutional change, we're not going to be able to improve the life of communities, much less that of individuals living with the disease. 
Wow, it's clear that stigma can affect if and when patients seek care, the quality of care that they receive, and their experience living with TB. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences in approaches to both HIV and TB care and why they are often compared and contrasted? I've argued so many times that the culture of care or how health or patient care is conceptualized in in TB is so problematic because the ways in which, you know, we think about TB prevention, case detection, cure, it's really policied and practiced around controlling the spread of disease and a little bit less on enhancing the quality of life and well-being of the people who live with the disease. HIV care, in contrast, I feel has been rooted in equity and person-centered approaches right from the outset. And I make this comparison because a lot of my research is with people who have both infections, both TB and HIV. So their sort of disparate experiences with care offer the perfect comparative case study. In much of the world, these services are offered under different programs, clinics, or health facilities. And so when a person has both, TB and HIV, they're shuttling between these programs. They're getting exposed to very different ways of care, of doing care. And so the patients that I speak to in South Africa primarily have shared that they they really value the individualized attention, the social support, the counseling, treatment literacy, the trust that they receive within HIV clinics. And they actually note an absence of exactly those facets of care within TB clinics, where it's sort of an all-business model. You know, the focus is on infection control, treatment supervision, <laughs> and then cure. And, and I don't want to say that those aspects are not important in HIV. They're, they most certainly are. I mean, U equals U is all about that in a way. But wherever there's been opportunity to engage a patient, to offer some choice or flexibility, to sort of deliver an allied form of support, HIV programs have generally actively sought to fill those gaps. And they're sort of moving with the times, right? They're changing with the times. In, in studies that we've run with co-infected patients in South Africa, we've actually asked them outright, you know, would they prefer to access a one-stop shop where they can receive both TB and HIV services under the same roof at the same time by the same provider? And yeah, they're in support. I mean, who wouldn't be? But as long as it's under the umbrella of the HIV program, they have a clear preference in a very sort of unfair comparison that's laden with loads of assumptions. It would be like me asking you, hey, would you like to go to the spa today or boot camp? Wow. It's so interesting that patients who have both HIV and TB learn about dramatically different cultures of care and clearly feel more supported when they are at HIV clinics. Do you think that might have to do with advocacy? I understand that some patients become advocates for their disease, in part to help raise awareness about it and reduce stigma. Do you know why there have been fewer advocates for TB compared to HIV? And I'll say that historically, I mean, any advocacy around TB has always been sort of a little bit fragmented because the most affected people reside in resource-poor settings or they're marginalized communities in higher-income settings. But by and large, they have, you know, relatively little power to rally together and fight for political and public sort of attention. So there's been very little inclusion of their voice in, in the TB world, in the TB space. I think another reason is that there's been some consensus right from the get-go. We know it's from the bacteria. We know that it can cause death if it's not treated. We know how it spreads. So the public has not had a reason to really get involved in the science behind TB because those questions came about quite quickly, quite concertedly, and everybody sort of agreed upon that. So as a result, any decisions around policy and TB happen behind closed doors where scientists, medical practitioners, policymakers were allowed in, and the community was not necessarily seen to have any need. By contrast, any debate about the origin and treatment about HIV 
came from its inception in the 1980s. There was constant questioning about the origins of HIV, what it led to, the sort of AIDS denialism. And so the patient and, and the public at large, by necessity, had to get involved. And ironically, it's this exact denialism that helped to facilitate people with HIV to actually find a seat at the table, at that decision-making table very early on. There was no consensus. And so they sort of had to rally for a seat at the table. HIV has also disproportionately affected um, the gay community who were vulnerable to the disease, but also had an immense social strength in numbers and already were quite familiar with grassroots sort of human rights and equity frameworks around advocacy. So any policy in HIV that's going to have been autocratic, coercive, or diminish the rights and dignity of people who are affected by HIV was quickly questioned and fought. It was also prevalent in in very high-income countries among people who have wealth, and they can support those grassroots movements. Yeah, and TB, we're thankfully, you know, we're moving towards that. Yeah, we're Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of efforts now of people with lived experience who are coming forward, advocating against tokenism, you know, for a rightful seat at the decision-making table. But it's really been spurred, Mm -hmm. I would say, in large part by the hesitant rollout of these new drugs that have come about in you know, over four and five decades. This is the first time we're seeing new TB drugs come out. And so it's the first time our community has had to come out and say, wait a minute, don't hesitate to roll them out, make their access equitable. And and now there's a reason to sort of rally the troops and demand access and, and really spearhead advocacy efforts in TB. That's it for today's episode. As always, this episode would not be possible without the time and expertise of our gracious guests, Dr. June Liu, Dr. Sarah Fortune, and Dr. Amarita Daftery. Many thanks to all three. To learn more about their work and other information on TB, check out the resources in our show notes. Although we had many great speakers that provided valuable information about the current landscape of TB, we wanted to acknowledge that this episode is missing the perspective of someone who has had the disease and navigated the lengthy treatment course. We'd also like to thank our wonderful production team, including first-time host Claire Mazia, veteran hosts like myself, Zainab Kahramanolu, and Jason Lohogtian, content creator Tsukiko Miyata, producer Jesse Knight, and our amazing audio engineer, Alex Jacob. Finally, thank you for listening. See you in two weeks with episode 89, where we dive deeper into the technology and development of vaccines. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.